Hello again, dreamers, and welcome back to our series on the Jesse Smollett hate crime hoax episodes. This is the third and final installment. So if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I suggest you pause this here, go back, listen to episodes 151 and 152, then come back to this. In part two, we finished up our analysis of Smollett's interview on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts. We went through the investigation that ultimately led to the identification of the attackers, which subsequently confirmed what many had already been thinking, that the attack was staged. The brothers having admitted to being paid to participate in the staging of the thing. We talked about Smollett being indicted and him voluntarily surrendering himself into custody on February 21st, 2019, a little more than three weeks after the attack. Then, a little more than a month after that, all the charges were dropped. Smollett forfeited his $10,000 bail, and he was ordered to serve 16 hours of community service, which sounded really shady to all of us, but Smollett was still able to proclaim his innocence publicly. Now we are going to get into what the prosecution had said in their brief written statement to the press about the charges being dropped. We are going to go over the press conference that Superintendent Eddie Johnson and Mayor Rahm Emanuel held and their reactions to the dismissal of the charges. We'll also have a discussion how we were able to tell, despite Smollett being an actor, that he was lying from the very beginning. Before we get started into this episode, though, I do want to take the time to thank a few more patrons. I'd like to thank Connie L., Ellen B., Jason, The Riddle Me That podcast, which you heard a promo for back in episode 151 of this series, Kelly B., Andrew B., Logan M., and Cheryl W. for joining Patreon, and Logan and Cheryl for also raising their pledges to the next tier, as well as Elle Smith for raising her pledge to the next tier as well. I hope you all are enjoying the bonus content on Patreon. After the series on Smollett, I may take a few days to focus on writing the thank you cards that I keep promising everybody and getting all of those stuffed and addressed and stamped and mailed out to you. I know you all know that this podcast is a one woman show and my life of course has become a one woman show as well, but I'm handling it and I will get these thank you cards done. I appreciate everyone for being so patient while my life has gone on and off the rails. I've been feeling really great lately, and this, you listening, you all give me life, so thank you for all that you do and all of your support. I can't say it enough. So, let's do this. This is the third and final episode of The Dumpster Fire that is Jesse Smollett and his hate crime hoax. Let's start off by talking about all of the evidence that police had uncovered when Smollett was arrested and charged back in February of 2019. I know we went over what happened, but I want to quickly review what they found out from their investigation and from the interviews with the Ascendario brothers. When Smollett was released on bond, the timeline of events and evidence against him had been laid out in a document called a proffer which is a document that outlines what they knew. Prosecutors believe this all started with the January 22, 2019 letter that Smollett received at Fox Studios 
where Empire was filmed. I posted a picture of the letter on social media a couple weeks ago, and we all got a pretty good laugh looking at the thing. It had a death threat, racial slurs, and a stick figure hanging from a tree with a gun pointed at said stick figure. Now, like I said, we got a pretty good laugh, and there's nothing funny about any of this letter except for the fact that we know it's fake, and because of that, it's absolutely ridiculous. The letter was ultimately turned over to the FBI for a forensic examination, but there has been no update about that investigation since early 2019. So if they were able to find any fingerprints or DNA or evidence that it was sent to Smollett himself, that information has yet to come out. The proffer letter stated that Smollett was very close friends with one of the Ossendario brothers, Abel, and their relationship began sometime back in the fall of 2017. So in all, they knew each other for about one and a half years at the time the attack took place. They socialized frequently, they worked out together, and Abel is the one who had been on the show. He was a stand-in for the character who played Smollett's love interest on the show. Text messages between Abel and Smollett revealed that not only were they friends, but Abel also regularly supplied Smollett with designer drugs, including ecstasy, which they called mollies in their text message exchanges. On January 25th, so a couple of days after the letter arrived at Fox Studios, I believe three days, Abel told Smollett via text messages that he and his brother Ola were leaving on January 29th to go to Nigeria for a couple of weeks, and that it was a trip that they had been planning for about two months. Once Abel told Smollett in the text messages the times and dates that they were flying out, Smollett sent a text message that read, quote, might need your help on the low. You around to meet up and talk face to face? They made plans to meet at the studio that afternoon, and following that, the two men drove together to Abel's apartment. It was during this ride that Smollett told Abel that he was unhappy with the way that the studio handled the letter that he received three days earlier. Though it does not seem that Smollett ever indicated that he sent the letter to himself, which, I mean, why would he tell Abel that? It's not necessary for him to know that. Smollett next told Abel that he wanted to stage an attack where it would appear that Abel beat him up. Smollett further suggested that he bring his brother Ola to help with the attack. While Smollett was more friends with Abel than Ola, he had met Ola a couple of times in his interactions with Abel, and Ola had also been an extra on Empire as well. When Smollett arrived at the brother's apartment, it was about 5 p.m. Abel messaged his brother to come out to the car and meet with them. When Ola got into the car, Smollett asked him if he could trust him. When Ola said, yeah, you can trust me, Smollett laid out the details of this diabolical plan of his. He said that he wanted them to appear to attack him on the night of January 28th into the early morning hours of January 29th and he wanted this to take place in close proximity to his apartment building. Now, clearly, Smollett wanted this done before the brothers went on their vacay to Nigeria. He told the brothers that he wanted them to catch his attention by calling him an effing empire, effing empire N-word. 
He said he wanted Abel to attack him, but not to hurt him too badly, but also give him a chance to appear to fight them back. Smollett also said that he wanted Ola to place a rope around his neck, to pour gasoline on him, and to yell, this is MAGA country. Before they got out of the car and went back to their apartment, Smollett gave Abel a $100 bill to buy the rope, gas, ski masks, gloves, and red baseball caps that resemble Make America Great Again hats. This meeting, the ride from the studio to the apartment, and all of their interactions on the 25th of January, what the brothers had reported to police, all of it was corroborated by video surveillance, cell phone data, and tower pings with the phone number associated with Smollett and the brothers. It all lined up with their story. In the late morning of Sunday, January 27th, 2019, the day before the attack was supposed to happen, Smollett drove to the brother's apartment and picked both of them up. He then drove them back to his neighborhood and showed them the area where he wanted the staged attack to take place. He took them to the corner of New Street and North Water Street and told them he wanted it to go down specifically on that corner, which was just outside his apartment building. Smollett said he wanted the attack to take place near the stairs on the southwest corner of that intersection at 10 p.m. the following evening, January 28th. Smollett pointed out that there was a city pod camera on the street lamp on that corner, and he told them that he wanted the attack to be captured on video by that camera. And Smollett specifically told the brothers to not bring their cell phones, and he also had a last-minute change in the details of the staged attack. He wanted them to pour bleach on him instead of gasoline. So, one of the lesser stupid things that Smollett did in this whole thing, I'll give him that. I'd rather be doused in bleach, I guess, than gasoline. I mean, if I had a choice. Smollett then took the brothers home and also gave Abel a check in the amount of $3,500, which he backdated to January 23rd. On the morning of the 28th, which was the day Smollett wanted the attack to go down, the brothers bought the red caps and ski masks and gloves at a local beauty supply store and they went to a hardware store where they purchased the rope. They used the $100 bill that Smollett had given them to buy the items. The purchase of these items was substantiated by receipts and surveillance footage of the brothers at the cash register making these purchases. It was also on that day that Abel deposited the $3,500 check that had been given to him into his own personal account. Later that evening, Smollett had contacted Abel and told him that they needed to amend the time of the attack to a few hours later that night because Smollett's flight from New York to Chicago had experienced some sort of delay of about four hours. Smollett's plane landed at O'Hare International Airport at 12.30 a.m. the morning of January 29, 2019. Nineteen minutes later, at 12.49 a.m., there was a three-minute phone call between Abel and Smollett. It was during this phone call that Smollett told him that the attack would take place at the designated location at 2 a.m. on the dot. A few minutes later, Ola ordered an Uber rideshare to come pick them both up at their home and to take them towards the location the attack was to take place. Ola's cell phone records and records from Uber corroborated Ola's account. The brothers took the Uber to the 1400 block of North Wells, which is about 2 miles or 3.22 kilometers from Smollett's apartment building. 
They got out of the Uber and hailed a taxi, which they took to within three blocks of Smollett's place at about 1.22 a.m. The video taken from inside the taxi captured footage of them flagging the taxi down and riding in the back seat. From the time the brothers got dropped off until about 2.03 a.m., surveillance footage revealed that the brothers were on foot in the area around Lakeshore Drive on the east, Columbia Drive on the west, Illinois Street to the north, and the Chicago River on the south. And this is the area that encompasses Smollett's apartment building. Video footage also captured Smollett arriving back at his apartment from O'Hare at about 1.30 a.m. At 1.45, Smollett left his apartment building to walk to a subway restaurant on Illinois Street and McClure Court. At 2 a.m., the brothers were at the intersection of New Street and North Water Street, but Smollett did not arrive at the predetermined location exactly on time. The brothers then decided to head a quarter block north and waited near a bench until Smollett got there, which was approximately four minutes later. Surveillance footage showed the brothers waiting at the location just prior to the staged attack. During his interview on Good Morning America, which aired on February 14th, Smollett identified the people shown in a still of the surveillance video as his attackers. Also during this video, Smollett was adamant that they were indeed the ones that he encountered on the street that night. The two men in that still image are indeed the Osendario brothers. The brothers then proceeded to stage the attack of Smollett, just as he had instructed them to do so. While this staged attack was happening, there was a witness nearby who is an employee of Chicago's NBC News affiliate who had just parked her car and got out around the corner from the location where the attack was happening. She reported that she did not hear any commotion or any shouting or anything that sounded like a fight despite Smollett saying his attackers were shouting racial slurs, homophobic slurs, and that he was yelling back at them as they fought. The staged attack lasted approximately 45 seconds. However, it did take place out of the range of the camera nearby that Smollett had pointed out to the brothers that he wanted the attack to be recorded by. About one minute later, video surveillance footage revealed that the brothers ran from the location of the attack and headed southbound towards the Chicago River, and then they hung a left, running towards Columbus Drive. Video evidence captured them getting into another taxi that was parked across the Chicago River at the Hyatt Regency Hotel at 2.10 a.m. Next, video evidence showed the brothers getting out of this taxi on the 3600 block of North Marshfield Avenue and they headed on foot going northbound at 2.25 a.m. This was a few blocks from their Lakeview apartment and the original location from where the Uber had first picked them up and took them to the scene of the attack. Video then showed the brothers walking from where they were dropped off towards their apartment. Two minutes after the brothers got out of that taxi at 2.27 a.m., Smollett's manager called 911 to report the attack. Chicago police officers at Smollett's apartment observed that there was a rope hanging from around his neck. This was captured by the body cameras that the police had on them. A few seconds later, Smollett asked the police to shut their body cams off. He then made his report to the police claiming that he was the victim of an attack in which he was punched while they yelled racial and homophobic slurs at him. 
He also reported that they placed that rope around his neck, poured a liquid chemical on him, and told him this is MAGA country. This was also the first time that Smollett reported to police that three days earlier, on January 26th, that he had received a phone call from an unknown number in which an unknown caller, someone who was male, said, quote, hey, you little F-word. And I believe this time the F-word was a homophobic slur. Now, dreamers, in reading the proffer document, this was the first I'd ever heard of this phone call that supposedly happened. So if Smollett had allegedly made this whole thing up, he's made up the letter, he's now made up the phone call, and he's made up the attack. So he's really, really trying hard to portray himself as a victim of some kind of harassment by some unknown individuals here. Smollett also told police as he was making his report that the attack occurred underneath a camera that he happened to notice, which he said should have captured video evidence of the attack. This was the same camera that he had pointed out to the brothers as they were preparing and planning for this. Smollett said that the first and main attacker, which turned out to be Abel, was wearing a ski mask, and it covered his entire face with the exception of his eyes and the area around his eyes, And it was because of this area around his attacker's eyes that was visible that Smollett said he was able to see that this man's skin was white. But as we all know and have likely seen pictures of the brothers, and if you haven't, I'll post pictures when this episode comes out. Okay, I'm lying. It's probably going to be a meme. But the brothers are relatively dark-skinned black individuals. And when Smollett was interviewed by Robin Roberts, which everyone involved in the investigation here watched very closely, Smollett made the statement that if it had been a Muslim or a Mexican or someone black, that he feels like the doubters would have supported him much more, a lot more. According to the proffer, this statement further misled police in continuing to investigate this crime having been committed by two white individuals. So that's what they were looking for at the onset. On the same date of the attack, on January 29th at 7.45 p.m., less than 18 hours following the report of the attack on Smollett, he called Abel, and that call lasted only five seconds. Two minutes later, Abel called back, and that call lasted one minute and 34 seconds. The brothers then boarded their flight to Nigeria. The next day, on January 30th at 10.46 a.m., Smollett called Abel again, who was in Istanbul, Turkey at the time, and that call lasted 8 minutes and 48 seconds. For the two weeks following the attacks, the Chicago police investigated this incident as a hate crime. They were eventually able to identify the Asandario brothers as the attackers through an extensive search through video surveillance footage from city pod cameras, private sector cameras, in-car taxicab cameras, rideshare data and records, credit card and bank statements, and receipts for the purchases made of the items used in the attack. On February 13th, the brothers flew back from Nigeria, landing at O'Hare Airport, at which time they were detained by U.S. Customs, and they were subsequently taken into custody by Chicago police. That same night, The brother's apartment was searched where, among other things, evidence linking Abel to Empire was discovered, which of course is proof that Smollett 
had at least a professional relationship with Abel prior to the attack. Essentially, they were able to prove that they knew each other and that they were friends. Police were also able to establish that Ola had been associated with Empire in some capacity as well. Following the brothers' arrest and after speaking at length with their attorneys, the Osandario brothers agreed to cooperate with the Chicago police and their investigation. From there, more evidence emerged. Text messages, phone records, social media records, bank records, surveillance video, and the receipt for the rope surfaced. It was then, just after 6 p.m. on February 20th, 2019, that this police investigation shifted from being a hate crime to this being a case of disorderly conduct on the part of Jesse Smollett. The following day, January 21st, 2019, at 5 a.m., Smollett was taken into custody at the area central police headquarters where he voluntarily surrendered himself into police custody. Despite all of this, including a grand jury indictment, the charges against Jesse Smollett related to the hate crime that he orchestrated were dropped, and it shocked everyone, including Superintendent Eddie Johnson and Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. They were shocked because they were not made aware of the backroom deal that was brokered between Smollett, his attorneys, and the district attorney and the prosecutor until we all were made aware of it. So nobody knew until we knew. Smollett and his attorney were also given the opportunity to speak to the media ahead of everyone else, and it was at that point that they continued to push the narrative that this was a legitimate attack, that they knew who it was that attacked Smollett, that the attackers admitted that they did it, and that Smollett is a good and sweet man who would never, could never do such a thing. And remember, he said, he would never be his mother's son if he was capable of such a thing. And if the brothers are going to be held accountable for the attack, then that's up to the police to do a proper investigation. So yeah, Smollett attempted to come out of the other side of this smelling like roses. But I don't know about you dreamers, but I smell BS. And yes, the BS is strong. And the police and the mayor himself were going to give Smollett a piece of their minds about this, believe you me. But first, let's see what the state's attorney's office and their brief written statement had to say about it. Their statement to the media read, quote, Statement on dismissal of charges for Jesse Smollett, March 26, 2019. After reviewing all of the facts and circumstances of the case, including Mr. Smollett's volunteer service in the community and agreeing to forfeit his bond to the city of Chicago, we believe this outcome is is a just disposition and appropriate resolution to this case. In the last two years, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has referred more than 5,700 cases for alternative prosecution. This is not a new or unusual practice. An alternative disposition does not mean that there were any problems or infirmities with the case or the evidence. We stand behind the Chicago Police Department's investigation in our decision to approve charges in this case. We did not exonerate Mr. Smollett. The charges were dropped in return for Mr. Smollett's agreement to do community service and forfeit his $10,000 bond to the city of Chicago. Without the completion of these terms, the charges would not have been dropped. 
This outcome was met under the same criteria that would occur for and is available to any defendant with similar circumstances. Um, I smell more BS all over the place here again. What the hell? Is the state's attorney even listening to itself? If they thought that this was going to go over quietly and smoothly with the police department and the public in general, they were mistaken. I mean, how many criminal defendants would love to be given the chance to perform community service in exchange to escape from all charges? No charges, no trial, no conviction, no admission of guilt, no jail time, no criminal record, etc., etc., etc. Who gets that kind of treatment in the justice system? Well, dreamers, one person who comes to mind right now off the top of my brain is Maura Murray. She got off pretty easy with that credit card fraud incident, right? They told her, just stay out of trouble and this whole thing will be dropped from your record. No harm, no foul. And now here with Jesse Smollett. Give up his bond, do some community service and move on. What's the deal here? Well, the one thing Mora and Smollett have in common that most criminal defendants do not have on their side is privilege. They were both given preferential treatment for their criminal behavior as a result of their individual circumstances. With Mora Murray, and this is my opinion, I do believe that she was given a good deal for the fraudulent credit card charges because she was a young, attractive, white, college co-ed and as for Smollett well he's a tv star sort of it's also been said that Smollett has lots of connections and relationships with important individuals such as the Obamas who are from Chicago all of this is a lot of conjecture and there is a lot of that when it comes to how and why the charges against Smollett were dismissed So I'm not going to go too deep into that angle because it's all speculation. Ultimately, it was up to the state's attorney's office and they were the ones that let him off the hook. Police insisted that they had more than enough evidence to win a conviction in this case. And the prosecution seemed to agree. A grand jury agreed when they indicted him. But question, did they have enough evidence? Was that the reason why the prosecution decided to drop the charges? Well, they said in their statement that Smollett was not exonerated, and that's really important. Police said that they had plenty and that the case would have been proven, but did prosecutors think that this case was not winnable? Perhaps. Celebrities are often exonerated, even in crimes much more serious than this. Could Smollett have charmed a jury? One of his attorneys was the attorney who represented Michael Jackson when he was acquitted on abuse charges back in 2004, Mark Garagos. The chances of Smollett going to trial and being found not guilty was a very real possibility, and maybe the state's attorney's office wasn't feeling confident that a conviction could be won. Some people think that the police were out of line when they went public with their opinions about what they believe Smollett had done. According to an article that I read on CNN.com, Smollett turned from victim to suspect, and this story went national. And everyone was talking about this, celebrities, politicians, all of us. 
Some supported Smollett, while others didn't believe his story. And some believe that the police essentially tried Smollett in the court of public opinion, and this kind of put the case in a precarious position. With the superintendent having lambasted him publicly, which I went through in part two, mainly for putting the city of Chicago through this, dragging the city and wasting police resources on him, and the department was also really angry when they figured out that Smollett's motive was to try and further his career and garner a larger salary as a cast member of Empire. Legal analysts have accused the Chicago police of overstepping, pointing out that the police getting all accusy in the media, that this was tainting any chances of Smollett receiving a fair trial. That the press conference they held when Smollett was arrested irrevocably contaminated any potential jury pool. Then there was the idea that this deal came about because that it was possible that the Ascendario brothers did not have a great deal of credibility or believability. Police knew that they were paid by check. By the way, paying by check has been the butt of many jokes when it comes to Smollett's carrying out of this scheme. Who writes checks? Well, I kind of thought about this a little bit, and I guess maybe say if Smollett gets any sort of reimbursement for expenses from his job, like if part of his deal is to stay in good physical shape and he gets part or all of his personal training and health and fitness paid for by the show and that he needs to write checks and or maybe if he gets a tax write-off, maybe he's thinking about getting all those tax creds, you know, from the federal government, which he hates so much, right? I can't think of any other reason why Smollett wrote a check for the crime other than he's hoping to write it off too, you know, when he files his taxes. Under other deductions, is there hate crime victim listed in there? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a tax expert. Anyway, the brothers also confessed to the plot under sworn testimony to the grand jury, and they were never charged with any crime. And I don't know if they technically committed any crime unless they knew this was going to be filed with the police under false pretenses. The only crime that was committed here was a crime committed by Smollett, filing a false police report. But at the time Smollett's charges were dropped, the Ascendario brothers had not been offered any kind of deal or immunity for their testimony. No one can say for sure what was going on with them But it has been said that it's possible that because they weren't offered any deal that they decided to stop cooperating and this is the reason why the charges were dropped. In order to prosecute Smollett, they needed to testify against him. Because, of course, Smollett was still, and as far as I know, is still saying that he was attacked by the brothers. So was the best way out of this to just give Smollett the sweetheart deal of a lifetime and pretend like this was just one big whoopsie? Investigators did have a good amount of evidence in terms of the brothers' involvement, but they would also need to be cooperative as well. And even if they did cooperate, they could have made for shaky witnesses at best. They haven't said very much publicly in regards to the case, but they have expressed regret for ever getting involved in the first place. Is it possible that the state's attorney's office sought a deferred prosecution instead? They dropped the charges, but they really had little to say about why all 16 felony counts were dismissed. 
They did consider that Smollett had some history of volunteerism in the community, that he was forfeiting his bond, that he did not have any prior felony convictions or charges, nor did they find him to be a danger to society. A deferred prosecution is a voluntary alternative to adjudication where the prosecution agrees to grant a certain amount of a reprieve in the case in exchange for the defendant to agree to certain terms. It is apparently a common thing when prosecutors have a chance to look over their options, including the evidence that they have in the case, and they come to the decision that criminally prosecuting Smollett isn't the best way to reach justice. And in Smollett's case, the state's attorney's office made it clear that just because the charges were dropped doesn't mean that he was in the clear or that he was exonerated of what he had done. The state's attorney's office, when asked if they would consider Smollett to be innocent, they unequivocally said no. The whole entire deal with the attorney's office and Jesse Smollett was shady in the way it was handled, the secrecy surrounding it, as well as the speed in which it all happened. Smollett getting the charges on him dropped in just a matter of a couple of weeks following his indictment was unprecedented, as we know the justice system has been known to move at a snail's pace. There is also a demand for more transparency in this as well. The judge has sealed the records. Smollett's attorney during the hair press conference made it seem that the judge made that decision, which I get it's ultimately up to the judge. But what she failed to mention is that she's the one who motioned for the sealing of the records. Prosecutors didn't oppose the motion either, so the records became sealed away from the prying eyes of the media and us, curious about what the heck is going on here with this special treatment. The fact is, everybody thinks Smollett was able to get a deal because he was a celebrity and possibly because he was friends with some high-profile people in the Chicago area, including politicians and celebrities. That he was able to play his get-out-of-jail-free card because he was kind of famous which is debatable depending on who you're talking to. I mean, I know there are some fans of Empire listening to this, but let's face it. He's no Denzel or Idris Elba or Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, no. Anyway, sorry, I got distracted for a minute. Then there are those who think, in general, that this whole Smollett thing is a waste of time, money, and energy that has been blown way out of proportion, that a bigger deal has been made of it than need be, and we all just need to let it go. One opinion article on CNN written by Isaac Bailey agreed with this sentiment. As a matter of fact, his article pointed to us being the bigger problem, not Jesse Smollett. Now, fair warning, some of his article gets a little political. This is his opinion and not the opinions of anybody here at California Dreaming, which is just me. But his article said in part, quote, I have a confession. I never much cared about the Jesse Smollett case, even before it became the most confounding story of the year, even if what he initially claimed had been proven to be true, that he faced several felony counts before escaping any real legal accountability for possibly faking a hate crime moves me even less. Am I really supposed to be shocked that a celebrity avoided jail time in an American criminal justice system that has been described as treating you better if you are rich and guilty rather than poor and innocent? 
The real story is less what this bizarre series of confounding events says about Smollett and more about what it says about us. I hate hate crimes as much as any other thinking person. But hate crimes and the like that involve celebrities who ultimately go unharmed, like the N-word being spray-painted on the gate of one of LeBron James's homes, or Oprah being racially profiled in a chic boutique, and receive instant support from millions of people, have never felt compelling to me. Smollett, by his own telling, still had the wherewithal to take his recently purchased Subway sandwich home after the alleged attack. They don't need our help, but we feel compelled to give it anyway, even as the least powerful among us who face worse indignities daily are left to fend for themselves. I am more concerned with the disturbing rate of harm that is too frequently visited upon trans women, particularly trans women of color, and the rise of white supremacist acts that lead to the slaughter of Jewish and black people during worship and Bible study. I started caring about the Smollett story because of the reaction to the story, because we've come to view the justice system as another tool to push political agendas instead of the best way to determine the truth and ensure justice. George Zimmerman became a hero among some conservatives when he was found not guilty of the murder of Trayvon Martin, even though we know that Zimmerman began the chain of events that resulted in Martin's death. Many liberals howled when Paul Manafort was given only four years in prison, even though liberals had been fighting against mass incarceration and unduly long and harsh prison sentences. This past weekend, some conservatives cheered when Attorney General William Barr said that the Mueller report showed insufficient evidence that the Donald Trump campaign had conspired with Russia, even though they spent several months calling the investigation a witch hunt and a hoax and argued that Robert Mueller and the other investigators could not be trusted. It should not pass notice that many of those declaring President Trump innocent of any wrongdoing because he faces no charges, and because of a summary of a report none of them had read, aren't willing to do the same for Smollett. But maybe the least credible actors in this saga are the Chicago police and Mayor Rahm Emanuel, each of whom have expressed outrage that Smollett is no longer in legal peril and that the case has been sealed. Chicago police and Emanuel were among those who made it harder to hold the police officer who killed Laquan McDonald accountable until the force release of a video documenting the crime led to the officer's conviction. That does not include the Chicago police's history of torturing black men and a judge's decision just weeks ago to declare the officers who made numerous false statements about the McDonald shooting not guilty. Smollett should not be top of the mind, no matter whether he's telling the truth or really staged a phony attack to boost his chances of getting a raise. But he is. That doesn't mean he should be scapegoated for our inability to focus on things that are more important. That's our fault, not his. Now, when I first read the article, I was kind of like, well, maybe we are taking things like this a bit more seriously than we should as a whole, as a general public looking in on this story. The bottom line is that we, you and I, 
We can't help how police decide to handle their criminal investigations. And we can't help how the media decides to lock their sights on certain stories. We are true crime enthusiasts, and I'll be the first to admit I'm a glutton for this stuff. We discuss so many atrocities on this show, as does nearly every other podcast in the genre. And when a story like this comes along, where we could talk about a case that doesn't have so much murder and mayhem going on at every turn, I don't know for me, in what we do and what we enjoy and what we listen to and what content that we create, I think it gives us a little bit of levity. While I understand much of what Bailey had to say in his article, making the comparisons as to how both the left and right have acted in contradiction to their typical baseline attitudes about crime and punishment when it comes to Jesse Smollett, I do feel that the article failed to acknowledge the harm and potential harm that Smollett caused the city of Chicago, real victims of crimes, and the communities of people who looked up to Smollett as a role model and an inspiration. His actions hurt and disappointed a lot of people. And as a whole, we feel like we've been bamboozled by the guy. I've said it recently in a number of episodes. We don't like being lied to. No, Smollett's crimes are not comparable to the other more serious things going on in the world. But we are not the ones who put this story out there. Smollett did this. He's responsible for this. And he owns this. And so if he's convicted, I don't think that he's necessarily being scapegoated. He'd simply find himself being treated as any other average criminal defendant out there who committed a similar crime. We don't think it's fair that Smollett be given special treatment because he's a celebrity. This is true. But we also don't think that cops should be given special treatment in the justice system just because they're officers of the law. This is true, too. But the fact is they both have historically received special treatment for those exact reasons. Smollett's crime was nonviolent. It was trivial. And on the spectrum of criminality, it simply isn't that big of a deal. At least it shouldn't have been made into one. But if any of us went around and tried to pull off what he did, I can almost guarantee that we'd be convicted of it. Just like we want to see police officers held to the same standards as the rest of us, we want the same for celebrities. And I just don't think that what Smollett did should be downplayed as being trivial for the reasons that I've mentioned above. Because we don't like being lied to, and he hurt a lot of people in vulnerable communities. If you do think Smollett's crime is a waste of time, then I maybe should have suggested in part one that this may not be the story to listen to. But if you've made it this far, then you're like me. I'm like the rubber neck on the freeway. I see a wreck and I just can't look away. It's a personality flaw and I am currently not working on it. Superintendent Johnson and Mayor Rahm Emanuel held a press conference of their own reacting to the decision on the part of the state's attorney's office to drop the charges against Smollett as well as the reaction to what Smollett had to say about his role in the case and their investigation. Remember, they found out when we all found out. So their press conference was held later on the same day that Smollett walked out of court, charges dropped. Superintendent Johnson said to the media, quote, So, 
I'm sure you have all heard what happened this morning. My personal opinion is that you all know where I stand on this. Do I think justice was served? No. What do I think justice is? Well, I think the city is still owed an apology. And let me digress for a moment. When I came onto this job, I've been a cop now for 31 years. When I came on this job, I came on with my honor and my integrity and my reputation. If someone accused me of doing anything that would circumvent that, then I would want my day in court, period, to clear my name. I've heard that they wanted their day in court with TV cameras so America could know the truth, but no. They chose to hide behind secrecy and broker a deal to circumvent the justice system. My job as a police officer is to investigate an incident, gather evidence, gather facts, and present them to the state's attorney. That's what we did. I stand behind the detective's investigation. I'll let Mayor Emanuel comment further. Mayor Rahm Emanuel said, Not only do I support the hard work of our police officers, but the detective units, and I'd also like to remind everybody that a grand jury indicted this individual based on only a piece of the evidence that the police had collected at that period of time. So the grand jury actually brought the charges. There are three things that I would like to say. One, the financial cost. This $10,000 doesn't even come close to what the city spent in resources to look over the cameras, gather all the data, gather all the information that actually brought the indictment by the grand jury on many, many multiple different charges. Second, is what I'd like to call the ethical costs. And the ethical costs, as a person who was in the House of Representatives when we tried to pass the Shepard legislation that dealt with hate crimes and putting them on the books that President Obama then signed into law, and he's referring to the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, both cases we covered here on the show. Matthew was on our regular podcast and James was on our Patreon in case you haven't listened to either one yet. Then to use those very laws and the principles and the values behind the Matthew Shepard and the mayor kept leaving off James's name. So I'm going to add him in. The principles and values behind the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. hate crime legislation to self promote your career is a cost that comes to all the individuals, gay men and women who will come forward, who will say that they were victim of a hate crime, who will now be doubted. People of faith, Muslims, or any other religious faith who will be victims of hate crimes. People of all walks of life and backgrounds, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. Now this casts a shadow on whether or not they are telling the truth. And he did this all in the name of self-promotion. And he used the laws of the hate crime legislation that all of us have collectively over the years have put on the books to stand up for the values that embody what we believe in. This is a whitewash of justice. A grand jury could not have been clearer than to say that not only is the cost of $10,000 doesn't even come close financially, but all the other repercussions of the decision that they have made. To me, where is the accountability in the system? You cannot have, because of a person's position, one set of rules apply to them and another set of rules apply to everybody else. In another way, you are seeing this play out in the universities 
where people are paying extra to get their kids special positions in universities. Now you have a person because of their position and background who is getting treated in a way that nobody else would ever get close to this kind of treatment. Our officers did hard work day in and day out, countless hours working to unwind what actually happened that night. The city saw its reputation dragged through the mud. But I remind everybody, this is not just the officer's work. That work, a piece of that work, was shown to the grand jury and they made the decision based on only a sliver of the evidence. And if I remember correctly, somebody wanted to have that evidence, as the superintendent said, he wanted to have their day in court so all the evidence could be made public. But because of the judge's decision, none of that evidence will ever be made public. None of it. This is, without a doubt, a whitewash of justice. And it sends a clear message that if you are in a position of influence and power, you will get treated one way and other people will be treated in another way. There is no accountability within the system. It is wrong. Full stop. Superintendent Johnson stepped back up to the mic and said, if you want to say you're innocent of a situation, then you take your day in court. I would never, if someone falsely accused me, I would never hide behind a brokered deal in secrecy, period. And the mayor interjected and said, from top to bottom, this is not on the level. At the end of the day, it's Mr. Smollett who committed this false claim upon two individuals who also testified, but also on the city. It is not on the level from beginning to end, and there needs to be a level of accountability throughout the system, and this sends an unambiguous message that there is no accountability, and that is wrong. And I want to say one other thing. Mr. Smollett is still saying he is innocent, still running down the Chicago Police Department. How dare him? How dare him? After everybody saw, and I want to remind you, this is not just the superintendent's word against Smollett's. The grand jury, with only a sliver of evidence, came to this conclusion. This is not the police department's word against his. And even after this whitewash, there is still no sense of ownership of what he's done. He says, in fact, he is the wronged in this case. This is unbelievable, not just a whitewash of justice. This is a person now who has been let off scot-free with no sense of accountability of the moral and ethical wrong of his actions. From top to bottom, now besmirching the name of the city. And you have this person using hate crime laws that are on the books to protect people who are minorities from violence to then turn around and use those laws to advance your career and your financial reward. Is there no decency in this man? Dreamers, while I don't disagree with what the superintendent and the mayor said in their press conference, I don't exactly think it's a good look for them. To go out there and publicly drag Jesse Smollett and his actions, leave that up to the podcasters. I'm kidding. Not really, but they're not wrong. I just think that they could have dialed it down a little bit and expressed their disappointment in the fact that the hard work that they did was all for nothing all the time that they spent investigating and much of the time under the belief that Smollett was the victim of a crime. Because when you stand on your soapbox, you better be prepared for the possibility that the tables are going to turn on you. And I'm not talking about the mayor, but I'm talking about Superintendent Eddie Johnson. Neither one of these men are in the positions that they held at the time of the Smollett incident. 
but the superintendent was involuntarily removed from his position later on in 2019. Let's discuss that briefly. On October 19, 2019, Superintendent Eddie Johnson was found asleep behind the wheel of his city-issued vehicle by other police officers who are his subordinates. He first said that a change in his medications caused him some lightheadedness, but he made no mention of drinking. Later on, he admitted to the new mayor, who is Lori Lightfoot, that he had a couple of drinks before getting into his car early that morning, which prompted an internal investigation. Johnson told reporters that he had began experiencing some lightheadedness as he was driving after having dinner with friends, so he pulled over and parked his vehicle around 12.30 in the morning. A passerby noticed him sleeping in his car and dialed 911. However, I don't know if this person recognized him as the police superintendent. When officers got there, I'm pretty sure they recognized him as the superintendent. They checked on him, and in the moment, they didn't feel like he had the typical signs of being impaired, and he was a couple blocks from his house. A breathalyzer test was not administered at the scene, and he was escorted home. Again, here we're getting special treatment. However, during that escort home, the officers did notice a few things. His driving was very erratic and swervy. He blew through a stop sign, didn't even slow down, and he made a turn into the wrong lane. And all of this was captured on private sector security cameras, body cameras, and dash cameras. After an internal affairs investigation, it was found that Johnson did indeed drive his city vehicle while under the influence and then lied about it. It was found that he had consumed numerous large servings of rum, according to those who served him at a downtown Chicago restaurant, and he wasn't with friends. He was with a member of his security staff. It was the not admitting to drinking that ended up being Johnson's biggest problem and what ultimately got him fired. He had first announced in November his intentions of retiring, but then the next month he was fired by the mayor for the ethical lapses. Johnson later admitted to the lapses in his judgment, but pointed to his reputation as an officer for more than 30 years. Anyway, he ended up settling on accepting going into retirement at a demoted position of lieutenant on December 4th, 2019. And what do you know? He too did not serve any time, nor was he arrested for driving under the influence. He was never convicted of it. He did lose his job and his career with the Chicago police. It was effectively over for good, but he was still never made to face the charges in court. I'm, he did lose a lot, but still, that's exactly what he was saying about Jesse Smollett a few months back. And it wasn't the DUI that got him fired. It was the lying about it that did. It's highly likely that he would have been supported by the department and sent for treatment if he had admitted up front that he had been drinking. But yeah, in the end, Superintendent Eddie Johnson got the Jesse Smollett treatment when it came to criminal charges. What implications does Johnson's controversial exit from the Chicago Police Department have on Jesse Smollett's case? To me, none. Whatever Johnson did, it doesn't change the fact that Smollett hate-crimed himself. 
But who wants to make a big deal about it in the media? Jesse Smollett. Of course he does. Anything to deflect away from what he did. I'll come back to that in a moment when it falls into our timeline of what happened after the charges against Smollett were dropped. The Chicago Police Department did release its documents related to their investigation into the Smollett case, though highly redacted, on March 27, 2019, the day after the charges were dropped. It also was announced that the FBI would be looking into the reasons behind the dismissal of the charges. Smollett also was set to have a hearing regarding having his record expunged, and in that time, Chicago had elected a new mayor, Lori Lightfoot, and she openly stated in regards to this case, Smollett is of no importance to her. So clearly, she wants this whole thing to go away. In August, former U.S. Attorney Dan Webb was assigned to serve as a special prosecutor to investigate why Jesse Smollett's charges were dropped, as well as all of the circumstances surrounding it. He reviewed the case from the beginning, Smollett's claims of being attacked, all the way up until why the charges were dropped by prosecutor Kim Fox. Fox is said to have had a major role in the charges being dropped, and she did so in order to further her political career. And she has, for the most part, come out the other end of this whole Smollett debacle unscathed. She is up for re-election this November for Cook County's state's attorney as a Democratic nominee after winning the primary last March. She, too, has basically said that Jesse Smollett's case is trivial and a waste of time pursuing. Boy, how many criminal defendants would love to have a prosecutor like that, huh? Like, oh, you stabbed your neighbor? Did he die? No? Oh, then this is trivial. Case dismissed. Now, I do need to mention that Kim Fox did recuse herself from the Smollett case because, according to a March 28, 2019 article in Rolling Stone entitled, Jesse Smollett Charges Dismissed, What We Know and What We Don't, written by E.J. Dickerson, emails between Kim Fox and a woman named Tina Tchen and this is spelled T-C-H-E-N. I don't know if T'Chen is the way to say it, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. T'Chen, she had sent some emails to Fox on behalf of Smollett and his family, in which she expressed some deep concerns about how the case against Jesse was being conducted by the Chicago police investigators and detectives. The state's attorney's office made the communications between the two public, and in those emails, Fox told T'Chen that she was attempting to get the FBI to take over the case. However, Fox subsequently recused herself from the case, and then Chen released a statement indicating that she was a friend of the Smollett family and that she was interested in opening a line of communication between the prosecutor on the case and Smollett's family because they were worried that Jesse's case was being mishandled and mischaracterized publicly. Well, it just so happens that Chen was Michelle Obama's former chief of staff. So, people in high places, right? You can imagine that Fox was heavily criticized for the way in which she handled the Smollett case. What made it even more questionable is that when she recused herself, she did not hand this case over to a prosecutor in another county in Illinois. She put her next in command beneath her in charge. So technically, at least in the state of Illinois, 
this is not a recusal because the office and the prosecutor have to be taken off the case, not just the prosecutor. It is considered to be best practices for any prosecution office, really, for it to happen that way, for this to be turned over to another county. That's what happened in the Laquan McDonald case. A prosecutor from another county was brought in because of a conflict of interest. Fox was also criticized for her dealings with Tichin. She should not have spoken to anyone with any kind of political connections about this case. But like I said, Kim Fox has weathered the storm fairly well. She won the nomination during the primaries and she will be on the ballot this November for state's attorney. So if she stays in office, that remains to be seen. As I've been saying all along, this is not over for Mr. Smollett. Once Special Prosecutor Webb was done with his investigation, which included a search warrant to Google compelling the company to turn over all of Smollett's emails, pictures, location pings, and private messages for the entire year from November of 2018 to November of 2019. After all that was sorted through, Webb was like, yeah, no, you're not getting off that easily, Smollett. And on February 11th, 2020, Jesse Smollett was re-slapped with charges, six felony counts stemming from four false reports given to police, disorderly conduct, and lying to police. Last month in June of 2020, a motion had been filed by Smollett's legal team for the charges to be dropped, citing double jeopardy. Most of us understand the double jeopardy clause, which basically says that a person cannot be tried twice for the same or similar crime after a defendant has been acquitted. There are a couple of exceptions. One is if the defendant bribed the judge, which led to an acquittal, technically taking the defendant out of the position of being in jeopardy. Also, if a person is in the military and has been acquitted in civil court, he or she can be retried on the same charges by way of a military court-martial. And the third exception is a person who is Native American can be tried twice if previously acquitted by the federal government. They can be retried by their own tribe. So how is Smollett claiming double jeopardy here? Well, the idea was he was given this deal, right? This quote-unquote backroom deal, shady deal. He agreed to forfeit the bond and do some community service, and in return, the charges would be dropped. So I kind of see where double jeopardy could be applied. It's a little bit murky. Well, the judge thought about it, and he was like, no, the only way that this would have been double jeopardy is if Smollett was convicted and legally punished. The $10,000, the community service, and not being made to admit to any wrongdoing did not amount to punishment. So, motion to toss the case based on double jeopardy was tossed too. Two days after the charges were dropped, the mayor and the police department sent Smollett a letter telling him that he needs to pay them back the money that they spent investigating him and the story that he cooked up in his fakery. The total they wanted him to pay back was $130,106.15. And they were like, don't forget the 15 cents and your checks are no good here. And if he doesn't pay, they're going to sue him and they were going to tack on fines and other damages that he caused, attorney's fees, court costs, etc. 
And apparently, when you file a false police report, you could be liable for three times as much as the amount that you cost the department in resources because of the fake report. So Smollett could be on the hook for nearly $400,000 if he doesn't cough up the cash. Well, Smollett did not cough up the cash, and the lawsuit against him was filed by the city of Chicago. His attorneys tried to have the lawsuit dismissed by explaining that Smollett had no idea how much filing a police report would cost. Um, hello, Jesse. It would have cost you nothing if it had been a real thing that you were reporting. Do you honestly think that you can call up the police and prank them with fake-ass stories and they're all just going to go back to the station laughing about it like, oh, that guy on TV on that Empire show, he sure got us, right? Ha ha ha. No, you dingus. The police are out there to help you when you need it. You don't have to pay a bill when they're done. But only when they're out there helping you for real, not for fake. Oh, Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. Does this man have no shame? Does this man have no shame? Just when you think he had all the nerve to be had, he went and had some more nerve. Last November, in response to the lawsuit filed against him, he filed a countersuit against the city of Chicago, asserting that he is a victim of, quote, mass public ridicule and harm and should not be held to pay the $130,000 to the city. <laughs> It's true. He's been the subject of mass public ridicule. Well, boo freaking who? Wow, wow, wow. Victim of ridicule. Please, honey, you brought this all on yourself by slapping your own damn self up and down the street last year. How did you expect to not be ridicule worthy, mock worthy, meme worthy? The memes alone are pure gold. If you couldn't see the online backlash, the reaction, the dragging, then you clearly do not understand how the internet works, Mr. Jesse Smollett. Oh, and the Osendario brothers also slapped Smollett with a lawsuit of their own, claiming defamation. Because, you know, Smollett is still going around claiming that they attacked him. Because two white supremacists carrying nooses and bleach hollering, this is MAGA country from Nigeria is a thing, right? As for the turn of events when it comes to superintendent or former superintendent Eddie Johnson and his firing, Smollett and his attorney wanted to get their hands on the records relating to his firing, citing that Johnson may be a witness in an upcoming federal civil case that Smollett is facing related to the staged crime. With Mayor Lightfoot having said that Johnson had been intentionally dishonest about drinking the night that he was found asleep in the car, of course, Smollett's legal team wants all that dirt so they can assassinate his character when it comes time for Smollett to go to trial. That it is relevant information to the former superintendent's character and his credibility. But the judge making the ruling was like, yeah, no. Johnson's firing and Smollett's case have nothing to do with each other. And this case involves the city suing Smollett for the money that was spent investigating the attack that he reported. The judge wrote, quote, This case is only about whether Smollett faked a hate crime against himself 
and wrongly induced the CPD to expend time, money, and resources to investigate the allegedly false claim. Information related to Johnson's termination 11 months after Smollett's attack for conduct related to Johnson being found asleep in his car is not relevant to the city's claims. Furthermore, the judge said that Johnson was not involved in the day-to-day decision-making, nor was he directly involved in the investigation into the Smollett case. He did not have any say-so as to what was going on with the case against Smollett. He was not in charge of it. So no, they don't get to see the sealed records regarding his departure from the Chicago Police Department. As much as Smollett may have enjoyed seeing the superintendents fall from grace, and as bad of a look as it may have been for the Chicago Police Department, that doesn't make it relevant to Smollett's case. And no matter how bad of a reputation the Chicago Police Department may or may not have had, I mean, there's a lot that can be pointed to to discredit the department and them not being credible and trustworthy. But that too, in Jesse's case, has been found to be irrelevant. The police, at least in this instance, didn't do anything to Jesse Smollett. He did this all to himself. He is the one who brought about the police involvement. They weren't the ones who went seeking him out in order to cause all of this to happen, leading to him ultimately getting arrested. This was all a result of Jesse Smollett's actions here. And as a result of Smollett's arrest and charges being filed, he was removed from the last two episodes of the fifth season of Empire. And on April 30th, 2019, Fox Studios and 20th Century Fox released a statement that said Smollett's character, Jamal, will not be returning to the show. It read in part, quote, By mutual agreement, the studio has negotiated an extension to Jesse Smollett's option for season six, but at this time, there are no plans for the character of Jamal to return to Empire. A spokesperson for Smollett issued a statement on his behalf that said, We've been told that Jesse will not be on Empire in the beginning of the season, but he appreciates that they have extended his contract to keep Jamal's future open. Most importantly, he is grateful to Fox and Empire leadership, cast, crew, and fans for their unwavering support. Maybe it's just me, but unwavering support would have been to have kept him on the show and let him finish out the series, I'm just saying. And as of today, Smollett is still under indictment, and I imagine that the COVID-19 has delayed his case, just as the pandemic has affected pretty much every single one of us in one way or another. And he is currently out on bond in the amount of $20,000. The final thing that I wanted to go over briefly were some of the words used and the body language that were giveaways in Smollett's interviews that, despite being an actor, had us doubting his story from the beginning. First, in his interview with Robin Roberts, he talked about telling the truth, that the truth is the truth. He also said honestly a lot, which means that Smollett really wants to qualify what he's saying to those who are listening to this interview, that the attack really, really happened. Throughout much of his interview, you will see that Smollett often cracks smiles when he is talking about certain things at certain points, and he smiles at really inappropriate times. He's talking about an event here that happened that was really, if it did happen, very scary and traumatic. It's believed that this is known to be what's called duping delight, 
And that is a micro expression that a person who is lying gives that demonstrates a sense of enjoyment that they are experiencing by deceiving or controlling people. And it is considered an important thing to look for when looking for someone being untruthful. Another giveaway is the number of times that Smollett said the word like. I read through his entire interview in parts one and two of the series, and you probably picked up on it. And also when he says things like, you know what I'm saying? Chris Watts, family annihilator Chris Watts, he used the word like excessively in his interviews as well. There are times when Smollett's head moves slightly down and his eyes stay cast upwards, continuing to look at Robin Roberts as they're talking, which is considered to be a protective sort of stance. And as he's talking, and I mentioned this previously, he spends too much of his time attempting to get around talking about what happened by working to qualify what he's saying instead, questioning like how could he be doubted. Getting to the truth means getting to the point and Smollett never really did that in his interviews. He kept going off topic. When Smollett is talking about getting back to his apartment and finding that there is no food, he starts smiling as if he's ruminating about a fond memory. He's talking about his creative director picking him up, that he's like an uncle to him. All of this information is not pertinent to the story. And this was all in response to the question that Robin asked, what happened that night of the attack? Smollett smiling and the reminiscing is not having us feel like he is a person who is recovering from a very violent, racially charged attack. The laughing about getting something to eat and going out for a smoke was also inappropriate. When he brought up calling his manager, he also said that he thought he might be in Australia at the time. He went on and on about what was going on in Australia. And I left this whole part out of my discussion of the interview with Robin because it had nothing to do with the case, which is the issue here. He's talking about more irrelevant stuff, throwing in more details than there need to be. Including too much unnecessary information can be a strong indicator of deception, which I said I believe is why he threw in details about getting a salad from Subway. When Smollett said that he heard someone shouting empire at him, he laughed again, and again, this was the wrong time to be laughing. He is about to recall a supposedly very disturbing event in his life, and he's laughing. And just before he said this, you can see Smollett ever so slightly biting his lower lip. Just before he said, I heard someone say empire. This is a sign that Smollett is holding back for some reason. That reason being, he's being deceptive. He's also biting his lip again after the laugh and he begins blinking his eyes pretty rapidly, which can be a sign that he's under a tremendous amount of stress. When Smollett talked about encountering the first attacker, that he was masked, that the attacker said that this is MAGA country and then punched him and then he punched his ass back, Smollett continued to blink and he keeps his eyes closed for longer periods of time, which body language experts say, is a possible sign that he does not want anyone to read his expressions during the time that he's recounting these deceptions, this elongated blinking. There is another thing that Smollett does that leads us to believe that he's making these things up as he's going along, is that he's talking about the incident in the present tense at certain points. He said things like, I texted my manager thinking he was still in Australia, and he punches me in the face, and fighting, 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 and 
kicking me in the back instead of saying things like, I thought he was on Australia, or he punched me in the face, or we fought, 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 or he kicked me in the back, which would have placed all of these events in the past. Instead, Smollett is speaking about the attack in the present tense, which might be an indicator that he is not recalling an event that already happened, but rather something he has made up in his own mind. And then Smollett said, then it just stopped. In discussing the attackers suddenly halting their attack and running off, Smollett flashes one of the biggest smiles of his entire interview. So he's just been beaten up, kicked in the back, and he's smiling as he's thinking back upon it. When Robin asked how he knows the attackers seen on surveillance video are his attackers, he said, because I was there. There's no doubt in my mind. At which point, Smollett pursed his lips and then he licked his lips, which is an, another indicator that he's under a tremendous amount of stress. And then she asked about his hesitation to call police. And he again flashed a huge smile. And none of this event is smile-worthy. I mean, if it actually took place. And then Smollett suddenly slips into what is believed to be a show of his acting skills where he began to tear up talking about being gay and being perceived as weak. There is a point in the interview where Smollett started to stumble over his words. I didn't bring it up in the first go-round. I just read it through as Smollett's scripted words were meant to have flowed. But what he said was this, If I had said it was a Muslim or a Mexican or someone black, I feel like the doubters would have supported me a lot much more. A lot more. The accidental word much the quick correction could be a sign of deception. Smollett also appeared to be incredibly angry about the 24-hour subway doubters, which isn't really the place his anger needed to be directed. His anger needed to be directed towards the people who attacked him, who placed a noose around his neck. He was more angry about subway than anything else he discussed in this interview. Smollett next got into the whole monologue about fear-mongering, and he again smiles in all of the wrong places, going off on tangents, not getting to the point, not answering questions. He's avoiding because the facts that Robin is digging for simply aren't there. Instead, he went off into this whole thing about fear and the state of affairs in America, even getting back into Subway when Robin wasn't even asking about that to begin with. All of it was meant to distract and, many believe, to deceive. The fact that Smollett told Robin that he was not going to give up his phone to be examined following the attack, of course, leads us to believe that he was being uncooperative and not forthcoming, that he was hiding something. And from there, he goes into this whole other monologue about the reasons why he's so important. He can't give his phone to just anyone like that. And in doing all of this, while at the same time, going into way more details again than are necessary in order to qualify what he's saying. Towards the end of the interview, Robert asked about the motives behind the attack. Smollett added more details to the attack itself than he did in the beginning of the interview. When he answered this question, he said, Who says effing empire n-word this is MAGA country n-word? He didn't say all those things in the beginning. When he talked about the rope the second time around, he said it was tied around his neck. That was a detail he did not say earlier. 
He said he saw a rope around his neck. And then he said, and this is supposed to be a friendly fight. What the hell does that even mean? What is a friendly fight? As far as I know, nobody ever suggested this was a friendly fight. Well, that is until we found out they were actually friends. But anyway, I'd have to say, based on body language, it is pretty clear that not only is Jesse Smollett being deceitful, it's also painfully obvious that Robin Roberts isn't buying a word that he's saying. Props to her for keeping a straight face through it all. If anyone is winning an award for this performance, it should be her. Okay, so that about wraps up this series on the hate crime that never was. I appreciate all of the positive feedback and responses that I've received in regards to this series. I understand that this is not the usual direction that California Dreaming goes, and trust me, I truly enjoy delving into the crimes that shock and horrify us. But every once in a while, life hands you a Jesse Smollett, and we just can't help but run with it. I enjoyed the memes, I enjoyed poking fun at the guy, but in all seriousness, I am disappointed in him, for the same reasons that many of you are. He clearly struggled to find his footing in Hollywood, based on his flimsy IMDb profile, but when he got cast in Empire, it was like he finally arrived. He landed the role when he was 32 years old, and he had waited quite some time to make it there. I'm talking about a guy who made his film debut in the Mighty Ducks movie when he was 9 or 10 years old. But from there, his acting career limped along until Empire. And then he squandered it because it wasn't enough. The reasons behind it all, the motivation, it just doesn't seem like it was worth the risk. We've seen actors and actresses make incredible comebacks after falls from grace. Robert Downey Jr., Winona Ryder, Britney Spears, Martha Stewart. But they all had long established themselves in some capacity as A-list celebrities prior to their personal lives taking a stumble. Eventually, they all came roaring back, and we've openly embraced them. Robert and his addiction, Winona and her shoplifting, Britney and her breakdown, and Martha and her insider trading. A comeback is possible, but is it possible for Jesse Smollett? I don't know. I know that he had a substantial fan base. Some of you have expressed that. But was he an A-lister? Obviously, even he didn't think so, which is apparently why he orchestrated this whole thing to begin with. He obviously wasn't in a place that he was satisfied being in and wanted a quick and easy way onto the A-list. Unfortunately, it seems as though this incident has landed him on the D-list. Once all of this is adjudicated, whatever the outcome, whether he's found guilty or if he's acquitted, will he bounce back? That remains to be seen. We are in this era of what is commonly referred to as cancel culture, halting support for public figures because of objectionable actions or statements. It's a tough time to be an outcasted celebrity. The internet is relentless. 
Ironically, in the end, Smollett did get what he wanted, everybody knowing his name. In his interview with Robin, Smollett was upset when he said he would never be the man that this didn't happen to. The good news for him is that he is, and it didn't. And that will bring this episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so and request to join. It is there we discuss all of these cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions and we respect each other's opinions. And we not only talk about this show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've recently read, as well as current news stories. We post memes of course. Perhaps I should start a Jesse Smollett meme thread. But anyways, come over and share. You can also go to the show's Facebook page. You can like that page and leave a review or a recommendation, preferably five stars. And you can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows, including content that covers true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to the merchandise store on TeePublic. And I have added a couple of new designs, at least one. I'm not sure if the other ones I've uploaded have appeared on there yet. But that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And TeePublic is also selling face masks. So you can get any California Dreaming design slapped on a face mask and wear it around town as you're trying to avoid catching the coronavirus. Again... Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.